While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? They said unto him, The son of David. He said unto them, How then does David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither did they dare ask him from that day forth any more questions. That's Matthew chapter 22 from verse 41 to 46. And here Jesus is quoting directly from Psalm 110 from King David, who was also very much a prophet and revealed various mysteries in his Psalms when you read them and look at them. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, which is also where Jesus literally sits right now, and he will make his enemies his footstool in the judgment. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of your enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, Thou hast the due of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at your right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Judgment day. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. In this one small psalm, Psalm 110, there is so much prophecy within this coming out of King David. Now here we also see one of the very few references made of the priest order of Melchizedek. It's a very sort of mysterious thing we hear about this Melchizedek. When do we first learn about Melchizedek? We learn about him in Genesis chapter 14, just after Abraham when he was still called Abram, it was just before God gave him the promise. He had just come out of warfare and destroying various kings that basically went and came into the land that Lot, who was his nephew, was dwelling in. And he he conquered them and got all the things that they'd stolen back and obviously saved his, his um, nephew. And so now as he's come out of this fight and he brought all the book goods back, we see Genesis chapter 14 from verse 16. He brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people because they stole, you know, people like slavery. And the king of Sodom, because that's where Lot dwelt, went out to meet him, to meet Abraham after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, this is really interesting because up until this point and, and continue after this, we never hear again about this Melchizedek, aside from in that prophecy I read to you from Psalm 110, and then we hear about him all the way after into the New Testament, after Christ's resurrection, everything in Hebrews by Paul. So Melchizedek is called King of Salem. Salem means peace. So he's the King of Peace. 
So this is not some ordinary king. This is not a worldly king. Melchizedek also means my king is righteous or king of righteousness. So we have king of righteousness and peace. And he's a priest of the most high God, a priest of Yahweh. And he brought forth bread and wine to Abram. Bread and wine. Isn't that an interesting thing to bring? What did Jesus do at the Last Supper? He gave bread and wine as representation of his blood that he gave for us on the cross and the bread representation of his body. And it says then from verse 19 that Melchizedek blessed him, as in blessed Abraham. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. So he's blessing Abraham in God's name. And blessed be the most high God who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And now he's also blessing the Lord God, the one true living God, the God of the Bible, the most high God, Yahweh. So he's saying like, yes, you have uh, managed to deliver, you've, you've managed to conquer your enemies, but it's the most high God who enabled you to deliver, to be delivered from all your enemies. And then it says here that Abraham gave him, Melchizedek, tithes of all. And he gave him tithes of all. What are tithes? It is a portion of your earnings that you give to God in the name of God. Now, this is in Genesis. So this is before the priesthood was made. This was before Aaron was announced the priest back uh, when we see later coming in Moses' days. The cousin of Moses is Aaron, and Aaron was part of the Levite priesthood. He began the Levite priesthood, who was again, God anointed him as a priest of the Most High God when all of the priesthood began. So there is a tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel as well, the tribe of the Levites. And the Levites were the ones that were always um, ordained by God to be priests. No one else was allowed to be in the priesthood from the 12 tribes of Israel. But yet here we see Abraham is giving tithes to Melchizedek, which is what you give to the priesthood. And so this is what Paul later on in Hebrews is explaining to the Jews that there is a change in the priesthood. Okay, I'll get to that in a moment. And so Melchizedek's called king of, king of peace and king of righteousness and a priest of the most high God who blessed Abraham and Abraham, who was a very wealthy and rich man, blessed by God, was to be even further blessed by God in the very next chapter, chapter 15, when the promise was given to Abraham by God. And Abraham knew to give to Melchizedek 10% of everything he had, because a tithe was, was always known to be 10% of all you had. And so he knew something about Melchizedek. He knew that this wasn't an ordinary man. He knew that this was a holy man, a holy person. And what we're going to see then in Hebrews is that Melchizedek is Jesus. And Jesus, being the Son of God, revealed himself in the Old Testament in various different ways through scripture, because every time there would be references, someone likened unto the son of man, someone like unto the son of God appeared to me. That's Jesus, but it's in a different form to who he was and who he is after he physically walked this earth as a real man and then resurrected into his glorified body. So we then see in Hebrews how God shows further revelation of this. In Hebrews chapter four from verse 14, it says, seeing then that we have a great high priest 
that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our own profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And this is referring to an understanding that the high priest that we have now, who is Jesus Christ, the only way to the Father, he was a physical man on earth as well. He, he was tempted by all the same things that we're tempted with, where he had to go through all the same infirmities that we have to experience day in and day out. And yet, without sin, he was perfectly sinless. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's saying that he's our direct line now to God. This is what Jesus made possible for us. What before you had to go through the priesthood of the Levites, you had to go into the specific tabernacle, you had to go to the temple certain times of day, certain times of years, to certain levels of things, you had to do certain rituals and all these things. Jesus made possible for us to now go directly to him. Chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men... So a high priest that is a mortal man, Jesus obviously not being, he, he is God in the flesh. But anyone who's purely a mortal man, every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. So as in, yes, they were servants of God, but in things pertaining to men, they were still obviously valuable human beings, just like we all are, that he may both offer gifts and sacrifices for sins who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. Meaning again, the priests themselves were obviously not perfect. They're human like all of the people that would come to have the cleansing. And by reason hereof, he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer sins. So the priest had always had to, after doing all the sin offerings for all of the people to receive the temporary forgiveness of sins and sanctification until the next time they sinned again, though they weren't supposed to sin again. That's not the point. Just like now, you're not supposed to sin again when Christ saves you. They still, even after that, then had to sanctify themselves for their own sins, the Levites, the priests. And no man takes this honour unto himself, but he that is called of God. So he's saying no one was allowed to call themselves a priest, okay, aside from uh, as was Aaron, as it says. Aaron was the first called of the Levites, as I mentioned to you. Moses, in Exodus, when he was being told and, and commanded by God how to make the tabernacle, how to make the temple, how to do the ordinances and everything. Uh, in Exodus chapter 28, he says, And take you unto thee, Aaron your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and Eliza, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. So he had special clothing as well. And it's actually, I highly recommend you read the, all of these sections in Exodus. As I always say, read the entire Bible. And you'll see 
just like the details of how you're, he's showing you how kind of things work in heaven, how things work in God's kingdom, like even down to what they're wearing. So if you see continued in chapter 28 of Exodus, I will just briefly show you a few of them. The priests were dressed in a way that was literally physically showing the burden they carried for the sins of the people and God's judgment and God's mercy. So, for example, um, in verse 12, And you shall put the two stones upon your shoulders of the ephod for stones of a memorial unto the children of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders. So he's like bearing the burden. Verse 15, And thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment, with cunning work after the work of the ephod shall you make it. So he has a breastplate as well of judgment. Verse 29, Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goes unto the holy place for memorial before the Lord continually. Verse 30, And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Tuthmin, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. And so on it goes. So really showing you that they were set apart to be the priesthood. Like no one could just go in themselves and say, well, I feel like doing the sacrifice to the Lord. No, you had to actually follow God's commandments the way he said. And we actually saw one of the kings in the book of Kings or the book of Chronicles where he thought that he could go in himself and to light a censer, to light a... Um, a censor before the Lord and the moment he went in and did it and the priest tried to stop in there like you can't go in and do that yourself and he's like well I want to do it because he was in a celebratory mood the moment he did it he became leprous in his forehead and they had to throw him out basically and they had to try and atone for his sin immediately so it was a very serious thing it was the same thing as well when um, the other uh, like prophets or people of the congregation started to attack Aaron and Moses saying like well we're all holy, aren't we? All of us Israelites are the holy people of God. So why can only they do this? Or why can only they do that? They were they were stepping on God's command of who has what place in the congregation, like who has what profession. So even though they had prophecy, for example, or they were seers, they would receive dreams and visions. They wanted the priesthood as well. So then they would attack Moses and Aaron for that. And God rebuked them for that. In fact, let me briefly show you that one. It's in Numbers 16. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the son of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. So basically a few from a few of the different tribes of Israel came to conspire together. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly. A prince back then was someone like a head of an army or a head of state or things like that, head of groups of people, leaderships nonetheless. Uh, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, you take too much upon you. Seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. He's like, the Lord is among all of us. We're all holy, right? We're all God's people. So wherefore then do you lift yourselves up above the congregation of the Lord? So they're accusing Moses of Aaron and Aaron of putting themselves in a position that they weren't called for when God called them out. 
So they're conspiring. It's, it's evil what they're doing. When Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. And he spoke unto Korah and to all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him who he has chosen, he will cause to come near unto him. So he's like, all right, let's put this, what you're saying, to the test. How about we take it to the Lord, like you should with everything? Take it to God. Don't go around conspiring with people. Take it to God. He's like, let's take it straight to God. And he said, this do, take your senses, Korah, and all of you in his, that have joined him in this uh, re rebuke, put fire in it and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man who the Lord does choose, he shall be holy. You take too much upon you, you sons of Levi. And Moses said unto Korah, Here I pray you, you sons of Levi. So these are the sons of the priests. They already have an anointed, um, ordained profession, the priesthood. Okay, so he's like, Hey, you sons of Levi, seem a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. He's like, do you guys take it as like some small thing and not a huge honor, the position and um, profession that God has given you? And he has brought you near to him and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you and seek you the priesthood also. So he's saying now, are you, you want more? It's like envy and pride is like you want more. You want to be above what God has ordained. For which cause both you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. He's like, you're not against me. You're against God in what you're doing. And what is Aaron that you murmur against him? It's like, why are you complaining against Aaron? What has he done to you? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, which said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up unto a land that flows with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except you make yourselves altogether princes over us? So now they're like twisting the whole situation. It's like, like I told you in the other episode, like they were constantly attacking Moses as if he was like evilly conniving them throughout the whole time. Yet he was literally the one directly speaking to God and saved them throughout of Egypt, all of those plagues, all of the miracles that happened, parting the Red Sea, giving them food, giving them water. They saw all these miracles and still this unbelief. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land that flows with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out our eyes of these men? Will we not come up? We will not come up. He's like, so we're not going to do it. We don't want to come and do the test before the Lord because they obviously have something to hide. And Moses was very angry and said unto the Lord, respect not their offering. I have not taken one thing from them. Neither have I hurt any of them. And Moses said unto Korah, be thou and all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow. He's like, be there and take every man his censer and put incense in them and bring ye before the Lord. Every man his censer, 250 of you, all of you, you and Aaron and each of you his censer. And he's saying like, let's deal with this directly with God. Don't just do this conspiring behind the back thing and attacking beyond 
between people. And they took every man his censer and put fire in them and laid incense thereon and stood in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. He's saying, get you guys out the way. I'm going to destroy them right now for what they for their rebellion. And this is this is why uh, Moses was called such a meek and, and humble man. They fell upon their faces. So Moses and Aaron and said, oh, God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin? And will you be wrath with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, speak unto the congregation, saying, get you up from about the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan and Abraham. And he's like, so now separate. Fine. The 250 men, all of you, if you stand on the side of God, get out the way of those three guys, because those three guys were the ones that, that began this conspiracy and they're the ones that have the evil in their heart. And Moses rose up and went unto Dathan and Abraham and the elders of Israel followed them. And he spoke unto the congregation saying, depart, I pray you from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So what does that sound like? Guilty by association is a thing, still a thing today. Not only is it uh, whether you commit iniquity or an abomination yourself, it's do you support others to do it too? Or do you stand firm in the truth and say, no, I shall not mix with wickedness. The just and the wicked have no, have no things in common. We cannot coexist. We cannot just get along. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan and Abraham on every side and Dathan and Abraham came out and stood in the door of their tents and their wives and their sons and their little children. And Moses said, hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works for I have not done them of my own mind. If these men die the common death of all men or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord makes a new thing and the earth opens her mouth, like right now, the earth opens, like the soil opens and swallows them up with all that appertain unto them. So them and all of their th possessions, and they go down quick into the pit. Then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord, as in then you shall know that these men are liars. And if it came to pass... And sorry, it did come to pass as he made an end of speaking these words that the ground clave asunder and was under them and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses, all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. What a perfect example showing like when God reveals your wicked heart with things like envy and greed and pride and like, well, what's so special about that person? Why would God ordain that person and not me? It shows your wicked heart. It shows the envious eye, the evil eye, the side eye, the grass is greener on the other side thing, not actually being appreciative and grateful to the Lord for all the fact everything that he has ever given you and not looking over onto what others have it is a wicked thing so going back to hebrews i just thought that was an important part to share as well going back to hebrews as i said from verse four in chapter five no man takes this honor unto himself as in being the priest of the most high god but he that is called of god as was aaron so also christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. Again, what did I just say to you earlier? Moses didn't glorify himself to be a leader of the congregation and Aaron didn't glorify himself to be um, part of the Levite priesthood. 
God ordained them. So same says, Jesus Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he said also in another place, you art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That was said in Psalm 110 verse 4, what I read to you earlier. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. This is when Jesus himself, when he was physically on the earth and just before he was about to be crucified, literally prayed to God, if, if you know... Um, if it be your will, like, take this cup away from me, the cup that he had to drink, which was the cup of God's wrath on our behalf to die. Nonetheless, your will be done. But because he was, literally, he humbled himself to come into his creation and experience all the pains we experience, and worse, worse, because he was sinless. He didn't deserve any of it. He didn't deserve any of it. And he says... He was crying with tears up to blood and he was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now this is again important. Though he was, when he walked the earth and still is, the son of God, he did not have pride. He did not become arrogant. He did not start using superpowers in his authority here, which he absolutely could have. Whenever he showed a miracle, when he healed, when he did the things that he did, it was always in, in obedience to God's will. It was always in a uh, responsible and accountable manner, just like God's armies, as I said, angels, the angels who have extremely powerful authority and powers, they don't just use them for themselves. They use them only in line with the commandment of God. And it says he learned obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Obey him, you see, not just all them that say, yeah, Jesus Christ is Lord. No, all them that obey him. Called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Again, what is the order of Melchizedek? Who's Melchizedek? My God is righteous. We are talking about Jesus Christ, of whom we have many things to say, are hard to be uttered, seeing that you are dull of hearing. So he's basically like, I've got so much more I can say, preach to you about this. Like Paul is revealing like the secrets and the mysteries of God, but he's like, it's falling on deaf ears because you guys are dull of hearing. You don't even want to hear it. You're basically saying like, yeah, we've heard you talk about this all the time. Like we don't even get it. Like, can you talk about something else? Um, or, you know, shut up, basically, is what they're saying. And the thing is, they're not ready. They're not ready for the deeper knowledge and wisdom of God. For when is the time you ought to be teachers? He's saying, it's come to a point now that you do know this information, that you ought to be teachers yourselves. Yet you have need that one teaches you again. He's like, you're so slack. You're so lazy. You're so not truly in this. You're not truly dedicated to Christ that I actually have to keep reminding you of the basics, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. So he's saying, though you should now be chewing, as I was saying to you in the other episode, like your jaws should be really strong now that when you chew the scriptures, nothing in the scripture offends you. You understand God is righteous and his judgment is just 
and that our mouths are stopped before his judgment. We cannot, like, justify ourselves in front of him. He is correct. He is always correct. He is righteous. He is just. He's the inventor and the author of what morality is, of what goodness is, of what sin is. Instead of instead of having strong meat, you still still have need of milk. You still have need of the basics to feed you all over again. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are full of age. It's like strong food belongs to those that are adults, even those who by reason of, uh, of use, so by reason of use, as in you're actually using using your God-given ability to have a mind, to think, to physically, habitually create the habit to continuously be in God's word, to study, to read, to exhort, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Because that's what the word of God, that's what the Bible does. The Bible actually edifies you. The Bible is a tool to teach you, to purify you. Because again, as I said, it's the living word of God. It's not just a book. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go unto perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. He's like, I shouldn't have to keep repeating this to you, what repentance is and the foundations of salvation. And by the way, when he says from dead works... He, he doesn't mean works in themselves are dead. He means dead works, as in works you do that are just a repetitive habitual ritual that is just you physically going through the motions, just like if you go to a job that you can't stand just because you want to get the money in the end. That would be dead works. That's what dead works is. So to everyone that loves always speaking, oh, your works are dead, dead works, dead work. Yeah, understand the context of what he's saying here. Dead works is exactly that. You have no heart in the works you're doing, as I said, which is why the entire priesthood and the, and the sacrifices changed because it was never changing their hearts like it was supposed to. It was supposed to change their hearts so they wouldn't have to keep coming back and atoning for sins through the procedure of the sacrifices. Of, of, the, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. He's like, I shouldn't have to keep explaining to you these basics of what happens after we die, of what is the two options in the judgment, of how, uh, how we heal, of how we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, etc., etc. And this will we do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Listen, so if you have received Christ and been born again. It is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away, it's impossible to renew them again unto the repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. In other words, public disgrace. And that's a big deal to God. Because remember, bearing witness to him is everything. And you blaspheme his name when you put him to a public shame by claiming you are in Christ, by claiming you're a believer, by claiming you're born again. And then you continuously have to be renewed unto a repentance as if you were never born again, as if you don't even know what the basics of the faith are. 
For the earth which drinks in the rain that comes oft upon it and brings forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God. Good fruit. He's like, so just like the earth that takes in the rain and then creates food that we then eat, this is a blessing from God. This is good fruit. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. And this is the evil fruit. This is the tares, false believers. This is in the end, the separation between the wheat and the tares and the separation between the goats and the sheep, starting at the congregation, starting at the church, starting at those who claim to be believers. They will be judged first. The unbelieving uh, and the ones that choose to deny God that are cold, they're already out, like the, the choice is made. But he's saying it's, it's basically a judgment between the hot and the lukewarm because the lukewarm are the ones that pretend to be in Christ, that want to have their toes in both sides. I want a bit of evil in my life, but, you know, I'll have good God on the side as well. Those are the ones that he says, they're nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though thus we speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Listen, what were we just talking about works? Is this a dead work? No, he's saying work that is worthy is your work and labor of love, which you have showed towards his name and that you have ministered to his saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Don't slack. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Again, do you not see how it's not a guarantee? It's a blessed hope to the promise of salvation. It's not a guarantee. Just like love in a relationship is not a guarantee. You have to actually show somebody how you love them. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. And that's in Genesis uh, 15, um, where God delivers the promise to Abraham and he makes the covenant and he goes through he goes through that fire or the parting where the animals are by himself. He puts Abraham to sleep and then he does it himself. He makes the covenant with him, his own self. God does so that he would take it. He would take the cursing, which is what Jesus came to do for us. And that Abraham would still receive the promise saying, surely blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. That's Abraham. And yes, he did patiently endure. For men verily swear by the greater an oath for confirmation to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the hearers of the promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. He's like, God is willing to show himself strong for those that call out to him. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Meaning that you cling to God with all your life. No matter the circumstances in this world, no matter how you are persecuted, no matter how you are demonically attacked, no matter how people don't understand you, no matter how people want to keep bringing you back in the world. It's like you hold on to God, which hope we have as an anchor, an anchor for the soul. Both sure and steadfast, meaning you're not wavering, your mind's not split, like James says. You're sure, you're steadfast, you're singularly focused forward on Christ, single eye, 
single eye on the light, in which enters into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now we come again to Melchizedek and listen to what he explains in chapter 7. It's so wonderful. For the, this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the king of peace, priest of the Most High God, again, before the law, before God ordained the Levite tribe, priesthood, etc., before the ordinances, Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, as I showed you earlier. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, a tenth part of everything he had, first being the interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descendant. So he's now revealing more about this Melchizedek figure, having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. Ah, so now he's confirming. The very first thing I even thought when I was reading that uh, back in Genesis, I was like, what's this Melchizedek? Sounds like it could be Jesus. Yeah. When he says without father, without mother, without descent, he's not saying that they didn't have a birth record for him. They're saying that they literally did not know from where this man come. And in those days, it was really easy to know. Everyone knew by their family name and their family tribes where someone came from. In fact, in some countries, that's still possible today. You just tell somebody your surname and they know, oh yes, I know your father, your father's father. They helped me. They had a meal. They gave me flour, whatever. Like it's still in some places today, but much rarer, of course, with the explosion of the amount of people that exist in the world and how big nations are now and how there's just basically no community anymore. But back then, it was very clear. So he was fully aware that he had neither a beginning of days nor end of life, but made like made like unto the Son of God. Do you see how he's saying he's made like unto Jesus, but in a form before Jesus physically walked this earth himself? Do you see what I'm, do you see what I'm saying? Now consider how great this man was. Verse 4 unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of his spoils. And verily they are, they that are the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. So here he's explaining to you, because it's a, it's a part of the law that you would give a tenth of your earnings to the priesthood. So two, uh, the sons of Levi, those who minister, those who are uh, heads of churches and so on and so forth. That's where that comes from. So when you initially figuring out like, where does this come from? Like that you give money to the church, etc. Well, actually, it's literally since the beginning, it's in Genesis, as I'm showing you here. So when you're questioning like, oh, why should you give money to the church or da, 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 it's explaining to you here that it's not the church you're giving it to. It's not the people. So, so listen carefully, because this was for me very important to understand what this, what tithing really is. And verily, they that are the sons of Levi, so those who receive the office of the priesthood, they have a commandment that they should take tithes of the people according to law. Why? Because they, their profession is to serve God. And so they obviously have physical needs like everyone else, meaning that God's not going to be giving them physical money. He will bless everyone. He will bless them, etc. But the people are to give their a percentage of things they own to them 
which is not actually given to them, it's to give it to God. Though you're giving it to a physical person, it is God who receives it in spirit. That is of their brethren. So again, of those in the congregation, not from strangers, not from unbelievers, from those who believe. Though they come out of the loins of Abraham. So he's saying the, Le- the, the tribe of Levi, they come from the line of Abraham, as does Jesus, by the way. But he, now referring to Melchizedek, he whose descent, so his origin, is not counted from them, from the Levi's, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that he that had the promises. So he had the authority and the power to bless Abraham in God's name and to receive tithes. And Abraham knew this before the Levite priesthood and who had no descendant. He came from no human being. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So here he's saying, though you are giving something to God, okay, you, the lesser, are actually blessed of the better, who is God. So if I tithe to God, though I'm giving something that is mine, and it would appear that I'm giving something, um, get, get, like losing something, I'm actually receiving much more from the Lord God because you're being blessed by God. It's, it's God's portion. You're so, God is owed a rightful portion to everything that you have because everything is his anyway. First of all, you must understand this. Everything is his. So you're literally just giving him a portion of what's his already back. That's what you're doing. And in that, you're showing him that you love him more than you love money, that you love him more than you love material possessions, that you love him more than you cling on to greed or anything else. You see, it's another way of expressing your true heart in him. And here, men that die receive tithes. So he's saying, though here on earth, men that are mortal and will die, so the priests or the congregate, uh, the ones that are ministering in the church, etc., they die, though they die, they receive the tithes, yes. But there, over there in heaven, it is God that receives the tithe, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. So from the seen to the unseen, the spiritual and the carnal. So though you're giving to physical human beings in a church, it is God that is receiving. And he is therefore witness that you have given a portion of what you have to who it rightfully belongs to which is God. And you know what's actually even more interesting when you think about it? The 10% thing, uh, which is what I would go by because that's what's written in the scriptures. Again, that's what it says. Do you know how much we pay taxes in our salaries? <laughs> I mean, we literally pay 50%. Some countries it's 40, some countries it's 30. Nonetheless, all of it is at least three times higher than what God is saying to give him his rightful portion. So if you have no issue giving to the government taxes of which you, they don't like they don't deserve that then what makes you think that God doesn't deserve receiving a portion for everything if which is anyway his just worth considering And then it says and as I may say so Levi also who received tithes prayed paid tithes in Abraham. So he's saying, though Levi pro- receives tithes, he paid tithes whilst he was in Abraham. He paid tithes to Melchizedek because he was the seed of Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father Abraham when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, 
for under it people received the law, because the Levitical priesthood also taught out of the scriptures. Every time they did all the ceremonies and the atonements, they also taught out of the Torah. They would teach the law, they would explain the scriptures, etc. to the people. He's saying, explaining to them, if perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, who also taught and made people conscious and aware of the law, conscious of why they're sinners, conscious of why they need um, sanctification, why they need to be saved, why they need to receive forgiveness, and so on and so forth. What further need was there then for another priest that should arise after the order of Melchizedek? So he's like, why then should Jesus have needed to arise to uh, as a priest of the order of Melchizedek, which is the, obviously the highest, as we can see, as son of God, yeah? Um and not be called after the order of Aaron. So like, why wouldn't he have then been after the order of Aaron and the Levites? For the priesthood being changed, there is a made a necessity, a change of the law also. And in this, he was talking about the fact that the, the physical ordinances of sacrificing the animals no longer is valid. Jesus replaced that. And that was one of the biggest disputes that was happening at this time. That's why they were being persecuted and murdered and etc. And, you know, uh, Paul went himself from murdering basically the people who believed in Jesus to himself being um, one who's being persecuted for believing in Jesus. Because he was also saying like, no, he was following. He was following the order of the Levite priesthood. And he was saying like, this can't be that this person who's not under the from the tribe of the Levites, like that they are now made a priest. But he's saying the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity, a change of the law. And also in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and the, the third temple has not yet been built. That was the second temple. And the third temple is what's going to be being built when the Antichrist comes onto the scene. In that, though, the physical destruction of the temple, and I'm not going into detail of this, I have in other episodes, uh, uh, teachings, but... The, the point of the physical destruction of the temple as well is that people will then realise, therefore, they cannot no longer physically do the ordinances. They have to understand that it's now through Jesus Christ that you are sanctified. You have to believe in Jesus, remember, because he is the only way to the Father. Because they have to get it into their heads, anyone and everyone, especially from the side of the people who, who were doing these ordinances, etc. So not so much people who didn't come from that background but especially the ones that came from the, came from the tribes of Israel and so on, and like, no, this Jesus is a fraud or what have you. They, don't, they need to understand that what Jesus does to you, what Jesus does by transforming and circumcising your heart, rather than you just doing a physical circumcision, rather than you just doing the physical ordinance of doing a barbecue, of doing the sacrificial ceremonies, and you never changing your heart, you being the exact same person on the inside. This is what Jesus does, does that the physical ordinances could never do. Because they would show you that you need atonement for sin and then you would go and you would just murder that animal like there was no tomorrow, cool, we just keep doing that and we can keep sinning and we can just keep getting forgiven. Which, by the way, people do today with Jesus too, unfortunately, from the other side. But when you are truly born again, Christ does something to your heart that the physical, just the physical rituals could not do. For some it's enough, but for many it was not. They took advantage of it. So, for he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. Speaking of Jesus descending, he came from Abraham, but he didn't come from the tribe of the Levites. He came from Judah. 
Remember, he's the descendant of David, King David. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And at and it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there arise another priest who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, so again just physical doing, but after the power of an endless life, which shows you all the way back in Deuteronomy the difference between cursing and blessing and life and death, the law of life and the law of death. So when Paul is talking about laws, he's not just referring to law as if it's one thing. He doesn't mean the law, like the law that Moses wrote down is evil. The law that Moses... He's not talking about that. He's talking about law in itself. And he's referring to different laws. There is a law of life and a law of death. There's a blessing and a cursing. We're told in Deuteronomy, this day I present to you life and death. Life, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and soul and you follow my commandments, you shall be blessed. And death, if you choose to turn away and serve other gods and rebel against me, you shall be cursed. Okay? For he testified that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, he's bringing it back to who he truly is. And I mentioned this again with the tithing thing as well, because the tithing is still relevant. This doesn't say it's been stopped. And again, if you think about it, in the whole scope of things, it is you showing your love for God and giving to God. It's not about who you're giving it to here in the physical. Because of course you can say, yeah, I can't, I don't belong to a congregation. You know, I can't find a trustworthy church, etc. Believe me, I understand. Like, it's very difficult to find a physical congregation somewhere where you can actually trust that they're doing the works of God. However, there are many other ways you can contribute to congregations and churches that you do think are preaching sound doctrine that you do think are actually um, helping brothers and sisters in Christ by having a real congregation like a small church that's not massive stadium with all this nonsense like no people that actually know every single member of the congregation like a a church member a pastor whatever you call them they are supposed to know every single person in their congregation and the people know each other and they literally help each other as brothers and sisters that's the point of a real congregation a real church if you want to call it a church um and you can find those and you can give to them through other means, right? That's what the internet, we can be use it positively for, although it is an innately evil thing, as is AI and artificial intelligence. So you can still give in that way, but knowing that, yeah, do your due diligence, see that are they at least preaching sound doctrine? Are they actually teaching you real scripture? And are they really a congregation, like a small one, a humble one, etc.? And then, of course, you know, things you don't know, you don't know. Do people do things you don't know? But to then not give at all is still really, it's an excuse. And so God may put that on your heart, maybe even through listening to this, like he did with me, like realizing, oh, no, I get it. It's not the person that's benefiting, although they might in, uh, you know, the physical aspect, physical needs being met. But that's a good thing. You're helping somebody's physical needs being met. And then also you're helping, you're helping the congregation grow and be supported. You're helping Christchurch. But the point is the money's not even going to them. God receives it in spirit. And the 10% thing is as it's written. That's what Abraham gave. That's what it says. That's what, therefore, the Bible says. And in that, you're, as I said, you're showing God 
your love for him. You're showing you love him with all your heart, mind and soul and that you you know that because everything you anyway have is from him, you are grateful to him. You show him that. You show him that also through physically giving a part of everything that you own, as in a part of what you earn. And that is totally, uh, it's absolutely acceptable. I don't know why it wouldn't be. And it it is a wonderful way to show God your gratitude. It is a wonderful way to show God that you love him more than anything else. You don't value money above him. You don't value material possessions above him. You don't value greed above him. You don't value yourself above him. Like, well, why should I, you know, or I don't have enough. No, no, he says, actually in, uh, let me take you there. It's in Malachi chapter three. And even within this, even though I'm talking about tithes and uh, like the result of tithing, it's, it's even still on top of that got a prophecy of Jesus, which is awesome. Behold, I will send my messenger, that would be Jesus, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. This is uh, in the second coming, how Jesus is going to come for judgment of the world. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Isn't it amazing even here that they're talking, he's talking about the um, refining of the sons of Levi as well. And again, by the way, it's not saying that the priesthood is not like a thing anymore, etc. It will be again. It shows in the new heaven and the new earth that we are made priests unto God. Let me explain to you uh, that a bit in, in a bit as well. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come nearer to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against the false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, as in people that don't pay people properly for their work, the widow and the fatherless and that turn aside from the stranger from his right, And fear not me, said the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from my ordinances. So he's saying like, it's not even just you. You've been doing this for generations. You have been ignoring my ordinances. You've forgotten my ways. You've forgotten my statutes. Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from my ordinances and you have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, says the Lord of hosts. And you know what? When you're reading scripture, sometimes God shows you so much like intimately his own heart and thoughts. One of the first things that like literally made me speechless when I first began reading the Bible is that it's the only place where I've ever seen ever that God is speaking in first person. He's speaking in first person. What book do you know like that? And I was reading that. And then that's when like I was getting the contrition and I was getting repenting. And I was like, oh my God, like it's you. It's you that I've ignored all this time. It's you that I've hurt, nobody else. And like the amount of brokenheartedness I felt towards God, realizing he's a person. And so listen, he says, return to me and I'll return to you. But you said, wherein shall we return? 
He's like, to what? What should we return to? Will a man rob God? As in, will you steal from God? Listen to this. Yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed you? Because again, if you think of it in the physical, it's like, how can you rob God, right? How can you steal from God when, you know, he's spiritual, he's invisible? Well, listen, wherein have you robbed me? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. So he's like, fill and take care of my house. Take care of my congregation. Take care of my church. Take care of the house of the Lord. And prove me now herewith. He's like, test me. Test me right now. He goes, go into my house and bring all the tithes that I am due. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. He says, I will, he's like, test me. He's like, tithe to me what I tell you, like that is the righteous thing to tithe to me, that tempers and ask you, look after my house of God. What did Jesus say? Store your treasures in heaven. He whose treasures are stored in heaven shall receive the blessings here on earth. If test me, if I will not open the windows of heaven, literally pour out blessings, pour out, pour out so much blessing onto you that you will not have enough room to receive it. Which again, honestly, when I think about how incredible God's mind is and just how really his thoughts are higher than our thoughts to the level like that all of this goes, this tests your faith as well. You know, instead of you thinking small mindedly like, oh, 10% is so much and, you know, I already can barely get by, etc. Which, hey, let's be real, for the majority of us is the case. Times are hard. But he's like, even then, like the widow, like the poor old woman, that Jesus saw put in that tiny like uh, nickel or whatever it was in the temple, which was a tithe. And when she went in and he said to all his disciples, he says, verily I say unto you, that woman has given more than what she even has in comparison to all these rich people, no matter how much they gave. She really gave because she gave from her heart knowing that that money probably was going to feed her for that day. And she still ensured that she gave to the house of God first. Verse 11, and I will rebuke the devourer. I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. The devourer is, can be referred to as anything that, that like can destroy life. So things like, for example, you know, uh, there's insects that can kill your crops and devour your crops and then you have nothing to eat, you know, or, or uh, can break down your building and then you have to pay for fixing things that you never thought about, right? He says, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. He's like, I will protect you in disasters and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, says the Lord of hosts. So he's talking about he'll always bless you with enough food to eat and he will also bless your seed, meaning your physical ability of children to have them, to have healthy children and to raise healthy children. And all the nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a del- delightsome land, says the Lord of hosts. And here that's why he's rebuking them. Like, you've, you're so far gone, you don't even understand. You're all in it. It's like, what's in it for me? But what you don't realize is if you give it out of the joyfulness of your heart that you will receive so much, you can't even, you, you won't even know what to do with it. Your words have been stout against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, 
What have we spoken so much against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. They said it's vain. It's in vain that we serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinances? Again, what's in it for us? And that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. He's like, ah, oh, that we have to like, you know, we can't just do whatever we want to do. We have to do what God wants us to do. So we walked mournfully before God. What benefit is it to us? And now we call the proud happy. Yeah, they that work wickedness are set up. Yeah, they that have that tempt God are even delivered. So now they're saying, which is what most people today say, oh, the evil people get away with everything. What about the rich people? Like they're happy, they're set up, they can get away with all that. God doesn't rebuke them. And then listen to what he says in verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another and the Lord heard, he listened and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. So when everyone else is saying, God's not here, where's God? God's forsaken the earth, you know, why do the wicked get away with everything? There's still that group of people that fear the Lord, that know the truth, that understand the prophecies, that understand what's to come, they understand the test of all this life. They spoke to one another. They thought upon God's name. They prayed to the Lord. And God put all of those things in a book of remembrance. And they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels, I will spare them. As a man spares his own son that serves him, then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. Again, do you not see the resemblance showing Who's a true believer? Separation of wheat and tares. Separation of hot between cold and lukewarm. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven. Yeah, judgment day. And all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly shall be as stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name, shall the sun of righteousness arise with healing in his wings and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Lord. Remember you the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all of Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And there's more to that, those phrases as well in the book of Revelation, especially Revelation chapter 11. And the tithes, by the way, are not to be confused with charity and giving in general. So those are two different things. Tithes is specifically unto God giving a tenth of what you have to him, and then cheerful giving in general, charity is separate. Psalm 41 says, Blessed is he that considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he shall be blessed upon the earth. And you will not deliver him unto the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him upon the bed of languishing. Thou will make all his bed in his sickness, meaning that God will heal you of your sicknesses. I said, Lord, be merciful unto me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. 
My enemies speak evil of me, when shall he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks vanity, his heart gathers iniquity to itself, when he goes abroad he tells it. All that hate me whisper together against me, against me do they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, cleave fast unto him, and now that he lies, he shall rise up no more. Yes, my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me, which, again, is literally a prophetic saying of the betrayal of Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus and had, had did eat of his bread. He was at the Last Supper with him. But thou, O Lord, be merciful unto me and raise me up, that I may requite them. By this I know that you favour me. By this I know that you favour me, because my enemy does not triumph over me. And as for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting and to everlasting. Amen and amen. Very powerful psalm. So back to Hebrews to finish off. Uh, Hebrews 7. Uh, for there, for for he testified, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, referring to Jesus. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before, for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect. In itself, it means it doesn't say the law was not perfect. It says the law made nothing perfect because people did not change. The law reveals your sin. The law doesn't miraculously change you into a better person because you have free will. The law doesn't miraculously make you start loving God. Okay? But the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Meaning that Jesus changed everything because he brings us closer to God. He brings the relational part of it. He brings the aspect of it that you are connecting with a, a real person. And... He actually draws you nigh to God. And why is that a better hope? Because that's the point. You're supposed to cling to God. And when you cling to God, then you will follow his commandments because you love him. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. So this is important. It wasn't with an oath that the Levites were made priests, but Jesus was. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but with but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swears and will not repent. That's the oath. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. As in his sacrifice and not the sacrifice of lambs and, and bulls, etc. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. As in... They're mortals, so obviously you had to continuously also have human beings that were being priests and that were doing the works of the Levites. And again, you have to teach that. You have to teach the next generation, etc. And again, because they were never doing it, as I was just reading you back in Malachi, they forget God's ways. They don't do things properly. And then in the end, you know, everything's ruined. People go astray. But with Jesus, as it says here, this man because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood, because he doesn't die. Jesus is eternal. He resurrected unto eternal life. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God, by him, seeing he ever lives, seeing he lives forever, to make intercession for them. So there's no physical sacrifice needed anymore with the, the, the temple and all that stuff, because 
Jesus is there at the right hand of God, making a continual intercession for us because he lives eternally. He doesn't die. He's not mortal. I mean, when you really understand the depths of the scriptures and like the depths of what Jesus did and the depths of this covenant we have and how incredible you would be running to have that relationship with God. You would be running for that gift of salvation, crying, saying, Lord, if Though I deserve it not, though I am but scum, you love me first, and for that I love you. For such a high priest became us, as in became human, who is holy, who is harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as those high priests who offered up sacrifices for his own sins, so as in Though even the Levites had to atone for their own sins, Jesus doesn't have to do that because he's sinless. And then for those peoples, for he did it once. Jesus offered himself up once when he offered up himself. For the law makes men high priests which have infirmity, so who are, uh, in fa- who are fallible, who sin. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, makes the son who is consecrated forevermore. Now of these things which we have spoken, that is the sum. We have such a high priest, this is the kind of high priest we have now, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So literally God's holy temple in the heavens. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. Meaning that Jesus wouldn't have been necessary if it was for your your physical life only. This is about your spiritual life, everlasting life. Who serves unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as in the physical law showed you, the physical um, ordinances of the sacrifices showed you a shadow of the heavenly things, how you are atoned for sin in the heavens, in your eternal life, which Jesus came to do from us, which was ordained since the beginning, since Genesis 3, we're told this, because God knows everything. Who serves unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God, when he was about to make the tabernacle, because Moses was again, I told you in detail, shown how to make the tabernacle of God, which was a reflection of literally what God's kingdom and throne looks like uh, in heaven. So if you want to know what that looks like, what our new heavenly home will be like, you best read all of the Tanakh, all of the Torah, all of the Old Testament, seeing how all this information was given to humans and what what that's like, how, how God's Character set up, how his kingdom is set up, everything. For see, said he, that you make all things according to the pattern showed to you in the mount. So Moses was shown, like in a vision, the pattern of how to make the whole holy congregation, the tabernacle and everything. But now has he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises meaning the spiritual versus the carnal. For if that had f- first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. In reference, this is in reference to your conscience. Like if the first ways in which we would do it, we were dependent on ourselves, you see. Like they had to do all the ordinances and God did the, did the 
forgiving and the mercy, but the people were still the ones that had to deliver the whole thing. And because we can't depend on ourselves, our hearts are wicked, who can know it? This way we depend on Jesus, who is perfect and sinless. That's why it's a better promise and a better covenant. And that's why he says, if the first covenant had been faultless, of course it wasn't because it was with humans. That's why the covenant he made with Abraham, he swore the oath by to himself and not by Abraham because he knew that Abraham wouldn't be able to keep it. This is the mercy of God. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant. That's why he's saying it's not because the covenant was wrong, but because you continued not in my covenant. You broke it. You were the one that continued to sin. You were the one that didn't change your heart. You were the one that didn't grab hold onto me. You're the one that rebelled. And I regarded them not, said the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their mind and I will write them in their hearts. So he's saying, I'm going to literally put your, my law in your mind, that you're always conscious of it, and I'm going to write it into your heart. In other words, on your conscience, that your conscience will convict you with the Holy Spirit instantaneously, knowing when you've done wrong. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And this is what happens to you when you're born again. God puts his law into your mind and on your heart. Again, is he saying here that the law is gone? No. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Like, this is how you know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. And that obviously has not yet happened. Not everybody knows the Lord yet. We still have to teach. But he's saying there'll be that time when you're not going to have to teach who God is. Everyone will know because he will be written in everybody's hearts. For I will be merciful to the unrighteous and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he said, a new covenant he has made the first old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. Just like the old earth and the old heaven will vanish and a new heaven and a new earth will appear. And in chapter 9 briefly, verse 11, But Christ, being become a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of a building, not a physical building, right? Neither by the blood of goats and calves. So again, this was the, the divine ordinances that used to be. But by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. That would be the holy of holies within the tabernacle, within the temples that they built back in those days, the Israelites. There was levels into which you would go deeper and deeper, or in other words, closer and closer to God. And the only person that could get into the holy of holies was the high priest. So you had priests and then the high priest. And there was one high priest and he would go in there only once a year. And he's saying, Jesus entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified the purifying of the flesh. So do you see how it's saying it's not null and void? He said it purified and sanctified the flesh, the body. It was temporary. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, without sin, to God, 
Purge your conscience. Spiritual. This is the spiritual sanctification from dead works to serve the living God. Christ's sacrifice purges your conscience, which is why you have a born-again experience, which is why you fall to your knees with a contrite heart and a broken spirit and a broken heart towards God. Realising that you, you have to die to yourself and live unto Christ because he did exactly that for you. He died for you so that you could live. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of internal inheritance. And then lastly, from verse 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, we have one life, we die once. But after this comes the judgment. So Christ was once offered, once, to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him, unto them that obey him, unto them that cling to him, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And that would be again that blessed hope that we are waiting for come the, come his, come the judgment. Meaning that we're awaiting him. It's a blessed hope. It's something we are looking forward to and labouring into. We're labouring to get into that rest. It's not guaranteed. That's why we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to endure to the end. We, we are to work on the fruits of the Spirit, including self-discipline and self-control, which so many people seem to ignore that one. It's a critical one in the end times, especially in the world the way that it is. And as I said to you in my other teaching, we haven't entered that rest yet. We are still laboring in God's field here on earth. We are to minister and continue ministering to the saints. We are to continue doing work for God while we are here. Hebrews chapter 4 from verse 9. There remains therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labour therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick, which means alive. The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. So the word of God pierces through your soul to do what? And of the joints and of the marrow. And it is a discerner, a discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. So the word of God itself, as I've said to you, sanctifies you, teaches you, trains you in righteousness, trains you in God's word, trains you in his statutes, trains you to be fit to meet him at the end where you want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the rest of the Lord. And with that, till next time, God willing, all glory be to the one true living God, Yahweh, and his only begotten son, who saved us on that cross, resurrected from death to life, that we may have life eternal through him, in those that believe in him and that God sent him as the only way to the Father, Jesus Christ. Amen.